Hey everyone, Saltgrass Steakhouse is now open in Mishawaka. Wrangle up the crew and head down to Saltgrass Mishawaka for an unforgettable experience. Sink your teeth into mouth-watering char-grilled, certified Angus beef steaks. Sip on ice-cold craft cocktails. And don't forget to try the famous Spicy Range Rattlers, all made daily in the Scratch Kitchen. Start making delicious memories at Saltgrass Mishawaka, 5126 North Main Street, across from Lazy Boy Furniture Galleries. Dine with us today. Portions of the day's programming are reproduced by means of electrical transcriptions or tape recording. This is Budweiser's weekday sports beat. Never say never, but never. I plan on leading this team with an unwavering standard. Everybody love everybody. We will call it the golden standard, and this is the standard that will drive this football program to its 12th national championship. With Sean Styers. I like that guy. What you could do is, is you could have a barbecue on that it's head. It's a good time, you know what I mean? On Sports Radio 960 AM, double. USBT. He's running down the middle by the 50. He's bare-chested and banging his chest. They're chasing him. And now your host, Sean Styers. Time to go and plenty to talk about today. Hello, welcome to Tuesday, or as I like to call it, didn't everyone's team win a national championship last night? <laughs> We've got some Notre Dame football to talk about here in a minute, including a uh, just a horrible take on Kyle Hamilton, if you haven't heard it. Yet, I will play it for you coming up here in a little bit. Coming up at 5.30, this being the 20th anniversary of Notre Dame Baseball's 2002 College World Series team, I'll be joined by another member of that team. We heard from Paul Maneri, the head coach, last week. Today, the closer from that team, J.P. Gagne, will join me. And if you're a pro wrestling fan, you'll want to tune in for that interview as well because J.P. is also the grandson of uh, some wrestling royalty. So I'll just kind of uh, tease with that. A little bit, and I'll talk about the national title game here in a minute. But first, uh, talked about this in our Sports Center update a few minutes ago. Some pretty significant news today: Notre Dame is going to play Tennessee State University to open up the 2023 football season, September 2nd, 2023, next season. This is going to be the first time Notre Dame has ever played a historically black college or university or an FCS school on the gridiron. Eddie George, like Marcus Freeman, an Ohio State University alum, he is the Tigers head coach. Again, Tennessee State University. Notre Dame issued a press release today. Here's a, uh, a quote from Jack Swarbert. Quote, quote, we're excited to bring a pair of great academic institutions that are steeped in tradition together in 2023. None of this would be possible without Dr. Mikey Allen and Coach Eddie George's vision for what this game can represent to our universities. I'm thrilled we're able to bring the Tigers and the Irish together for a weekend that will feature programs with over 20 combined national titles, the aristocrat of bands and the band of the Fighting Irish, end quote. That is from Jack Swarbrick. So one side of this, okay, it's cool. They're going to play in HBCU. Not everyone does that. That is, we know that. This, you know, but in the school, Tennessee State's going to get a big paycheck out of it for coming up here. Notre Dame men's basketball went to another historically black college university Played on Howard's home court this season. That was pretty cool. Mike Brace said, hey, you know, that might have factored into Notre Dame getting that at-large bid in the NCAA tournament, the fact that they were willing to do that. Okay, so that's cool. Basketball team did it this year. Football team now is going to do it 
next year. More significant, though, this is going to be the first ever FCS school Notre Dame football has ever played. And even more significant than that, Notre Dame as of right now is still the last FBS school to have never played an FCS opponent. Never. And that means something. You know, when the schedules start getting analyzed at the end of the season, they're not being, you know, they're they're being sized up for playoff contention and all that. They're, you know, they're already not in a conference. They don't play a conference championship game. We know all that kind of stuff. That factors into their scheduling. So now they're going to play an FCS school. All the talk about tradition, all these different things. They're bringing back going to Mass at the Basilica because that was a big tradition that's missing. Well, another big tradition is you've never played an FCS school before. And no matter how you want to wrap it up and put a bow on it and everything else, that's going to go away now next year. You know, all the, well, if we do this or we do that, we're just like everyone else. Well, no matter what people said about Notre Dame's schedule and, you know, not being in a conference and all that stuff, Notre Dame could always say, we've never played an FCS school. And they could throw that back in Alabama and Georgia and anyone else's faces that they wanted. They've never played an FCS school. They won't be able to do that anymore once they play Tennessee State next season. So, press conference coming up tomorrow. The athletic directors will be there. The head coaches will be there. So, we will uh, we will have an eye on that. As, again, Notre Dame announces today that they are going to play Tennessee State, an FCS opponent, to open up the 2023 season. They'll run it up top to Brown. Brown, chest pass into the right corner. Martin, three right corner. Got it! First time Kansas has led since 18-16. Remy Martin's three. Remy Martin came up big. The Kansas Jayhawks came up big in the second half. Last night, College Basketball National Championship game, Kansas overcomes a 16-point first-half deficit. Biggest comeback ever in a national championship game to beat North Carolina 72-69. Fourth national championship in program history for the Jayhawks, the first for KU since 2008. And, you know, if you listen to the show, you know I'm not just a Kansas fan. I'm a University of Kansas alum as well. So it is, uh, you know, it's obviously pretty exciting. You know, I may or may not have been wearing Kansas Jayhawk shirts for, you know, like the last week or two straight, <laughs> you know, pretty much digging out all the shirts out of a closet, my drawers and and uh, everything else. I'm not going to gloat. I'm not going to rub it in. None of that, though. Bobby Hensley, who does rapid fire with me a couple times a week here in the six o'clock hour was on with me last night, and uh, he's a North Carolina fan. He had his uh, you know Carolina jersey on. I had my KU t-shirt on last night. You know we texted a few times throughout the game. Started right away. Kansas goes up seven nothing, and I get the first text from Bobby. I just turned it on, and it's already seven or nothing. Well, that didn't last long because the Tar Heels really flipped the switch, and you know they went to work. Kansas shot just thirty percent in the first half. The game plan was, you know, just kind of a head-scratcher, I felt like. They kept trying to go inside and never made any adjustments, just doing the same stuff over and over again, expecting a different result. But the result was a 15-point halftime deficit. The game was on TBS, which meant you got the uh, NBA on TNT crew. Charles Barkley, Kenny Smith, Ernie Johnson hosting the studio show. And now... You know, Barkley gets some grief for not always knowing the college play, you know, like the names of the players and that kind of stuff. And, you know, and again, you know, I've been I've talked about that before, but 
halftime, he knows his strategy. And it doesn't matter what the names of the players are and if he knows the personnel inside and out. He ripped the game plan, Bill Self had, in the first half. I wish I, I, I couldn't find the audio today. I'll just read you the quote. Kansas had an awful game plan. Self still thinks he's playing against Villanova. Coach Self is. You're trying to pound the ball into David McCormick, and he's playing like those little dudes at Villanova. That's not Kansas' game plan. They're the fastest team in this tournament. They're guard-oriented. And if you tell me Caleb Love and R.J. Davis were going to be 4 for 17 and they would still have a 15-point lead, listen, Carolina played great, but that was an awful plan by Kansas. McCormick, his career high was 25 because he played a bunch against the 6-2 guys at Villanova. Their guards got to speed the game. Make a difference, but you cannot have that same game plan against guys like the Carolina guys, end quote from Charles Barkley, and I could not have agreed more. My my text chain was working overtime with the guys I was texting with at halftime, and you know Barkley's thoughts were my thoughts. I think that Bill Self thought they were going to be able to take advantage of Armando Baycott's bad ankle. He was hobbling around in pregame, limping a little bit early in the game, but as Barkley said, Kansas had no answer in the paint trying to go toe to, for toe with those guys, Baycott and Manic. And I, I thought Kansas needed to get running in the second half to take advantage of North Carolina's lack of depth, make Manic have to run, make Baycott have to run more than he wanted to on that bad ankle, and that is exactly what they did. By McCormick and Baycott limping up the floor, really dragging that foot now as Brown all the way to the rim lays it in. Baycott never got to the half-court line as Kansas cuts the lead down to 11, 40 to 29. I mean, track meet, you know, they finally got out and they got running the basketball in the second half. And it was, I mean, that is their strength. That's what they did in the second half against Miami when they were down um, in the Elite Eight game. And, you know, it's funny because... Early in Bill Self's career, he had the reputation of being a great recruiter, but so-so as an in-game strategy coach. But over the course of his career, he has really flipped the 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 you know the the narrative on that, flipped the script on it. In the 2008 championship game, the win over John Calipari and Memphis, Kansas was down by nine with over two minutes to play. He started fouling. You know, a bad free throw shooting Memphis team started fouling earlier than a lot of, of coaches would with well over two minutes to play. And then it ends up Mario Chalmers hits a three-pointer, sends the game to overtime, and they win the national championship then. They win it last night. And, you know, you can argue self should have adjusted sooner. I was in that boat. But, you know, again, just like the Elite Eight game against Miami, self adjusts. They come out running. They go from shooting 30% in the first half to 57% in the second half. And amazingly, coming into this season, Kansas had come from 15 down to win just twice in their history. But last night marked the biggest comeback in national championship game history. It's like they played Ali rope-a-dope in the first half and then just came out and floated like a butterfly, stung like a bee, lightning quickness, running up and down the court and taking advantage of that, using uh, North Carolina's lack of depth and, uh, you know, their, their, uh, their size against them. And, you know, that second half was just a fun half of college basketball to watch. I, you know, I realize it helps team you're rooting for wins and all that. But, you know, by the way, my father-in-law, he lives in Topeka, Kansas, which is about 25 minutes from the Kansas campus and lifelong Jayhawk basketball fan. His dad was actually a Mason who cut the stones to, to help 
build Allen Fieldhouse back in the day. But my father-in-law, in that 2008 game, he went to bed at halftime. He was so mad, went to bed at halftime in 2008, uh, only to, you know before Kansas came back to win the national championship. It wasn't until he got up later that he found out they had uh, won the title. He had been waiting 20 years for him to win. But uh, I really, one thing I had to chuckle at, though, and you know what, I'll just save it, and I'll talk about it here in a little bit because I've got some other stuff that I want to get to regarding Kyle Hamilton right now. Uh, Michigan fans, a lot of schadenfreude when it comes to uh, the lead-up to this year's NFL draft when it comes to Kyle Hamilton. And if you're on social media, maybe you saw this clip, maybe you heard it. There's been a lot of Kyle Hamilton bashing. Some of it's understandable since he didn't have a great 40 time either at the uh, NFL Combine or at Notre Dame's Pro Day a couple of weeks ago. But I'm going to play a cut for you from a show on the Woodward Sports Network. It is based out of the Detroit area. First guy talking is one of the co-hosts, Ryan Ermani. And the other guy is former Michigan and NFL wide receiver Braylon Edwards. So I will play that for you right now. Who's the one guy you you will be like, oh no, if the Lions PTSD. pick him? To me, it's Kyle Hamilton. Uh, <clears throat> I, and I really hope I'd rather them take it, an opportunity on Sauce Gardner. Yeah. I'd rather them go with Thibodeau. I'd rather them do anything other than take Kyle Hamilton. It's almost like when you put the game film on, and I watch Notre Dame a lot. How can you not? Um, when he's on the field, I just don't NBC. feel like he's a difference maker. He just wasn't that that difference maker that you saw Aiden Hutchinson take over a game. Hell, in the UCLA game, you did see that from Kayvon Thibodeau. Yeah. Uh, Sauce Gardner, nobody's taking half the field away for his entire for the entire year, let alone yeah. a game. Um, you have these defensive players who just take over a game and I just never saw that from him. Something about it's something about Notre Dame that just doesn't translate into the NFL. I look at all these great players that Notre Dame has had in terms of in college. They don't pan out in the league. And if you want to specifically focus on the safety position, Tom Zivikowski, nothing. Glenn Earl, nothing. Jerome Sapp, nothing. They don't pan out in the league. We talked about this. If you want to draft the guy number two play safety He's got to be a game changer. Mm-hmm. He's got to be a guy that you win games because of. he's got to be a guy that the other team is scared to play against. They have to come up with a game plan for. Um, one thing about a safety, there's a lot on that potential. He's literally the quarterback of the defense. He and the Mike linebacker. He has to know everybody's position. He has to know the coverages. He has to know everything about the offense that he's playing against, about the defense that he's playing on. Got to know all that stuff. When you play with a cornerback, Cornerback doesn't have the same responsibilities. They could be a lockdown, shutdown corner, and they could just worry about their third of the field. Kyle Hamilton's got to worry about the whole field and everybody, and I just don't want to put that type of ju- I don't want to put that type of pressure on a guy that I don't believe in. That's why I don't want Kyle Hamilton number two. I think he's a really good player, not at two. <laughs> I don't know who's got the worst take because it's bad on both counts. They're, you know, they're basically just a, you know, he's not a difference maker. Kyle Hamilton didn't take over games. Then he brings up these names, Zibikowski, Glenn Earl, Jerome Sapp. Braylon Edwards is 39 years old. Not old by any means by regular standards, but he hasn't played in the NFL for 10 years. 
he played with four different NFL teams from 2005 through 2012. He played at Michigan from 01 through 04. That's that's been a while ago, and you know it's painfully obvious by listening to this take because Braylon Edwards wants to tell you that Kyle Hamilton is not worthy of a number one overall pick or a number two overall pick by the Lions. Because three players from the Bob Davey, Tyrone Willingham, and Charlie Weiss era were not NFL safeties. That's his point of reference. Kyle Hamilton can't cut it, according to Braylon Edwards. Notre Dame players can't cut it because Zibikowski, Earl, and Sapp couldn't cut it almost 20 years ago when Braylon Edwards played against him. Braylon Edwards might as well be telling you not to watch NBC because Niles and Daphne is just a worn out storyline on Frazier, you know, which went off the air in 2004 when Edwards' Michigan career came to a close. It is just painfully obvious that Braylon Edwards must be watching 90s sitcoms or something other than watching, well, anything other but football, other than football. He's not watching current NFL players because he obviously never heard of, oh, a guy named Harrison Smith. Because he's only, you know, one of the best safeties in the NFL over the past decade. Edwards made one Pro Bowl in his eight-year NFL career. Harrison Smith has been a first-team All-Pro, and he's been to six Pro Bowls in his 10-year career. That's still going on, by the way. Played longer than Braylon Edwards and played better than Braylon Edwards. But, you know, it's something Edwards should know. Since, you know, again, even if Edwards didn't play against Harrison Smith, he's... Harrison Smith plays for the Minnesota Vikings, who play in the same division with the Detroit Lions. Twice a year, they play the Detroit Lions. And Edwards is doing a Detroit-based radio show evaluating players the Lions might draft. They might want to watch, you know, that play of Hamilton's interception against Florida State, though. Remember that one where he's on the far hash mark and the quarterback throws to the near sideline and Hamilton covers you know, the entire space runs across the field all the way from one hash mark to the near sideline and makes the interception diving before he goes out of bounds on the sideline. I'd say that is some range. I'd say, you know, and again, he's a safety. What safety is known for taking over games the way these guys are talking about? You can, yeah, you can game plan around a safety. Just ask Alohi Gilman. Just ask Kyle Hamilton the last couple of years once opposing offensive coordinators saw his range that you know that's what they do but when you do that in the NFL you've got other like talented players and you expect him that that that's still being a difference maker when they have to game plan around you so again one of the worst takes I think you're ever going to hear and uh had it for you right there Cal I'm 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 really curious to see where Kyle Hamilton goes is he worthy of a number two pick you don't st- typically see safeties at number two Overall, that's the only part of the argument I, I, you know, that I can buy. You don't see safeties typically go that high, but you also typically don't see offensive guards go in the top 10, and that's where Quentin Nelson went, and it's worked out pretty well for the Indianapolis Colts. We're going to take a timeout. When we come back, we're going to relive some more College World Series memories from 2002. The closer from that team, J.P. Ganya, grandson of former professional wrestler, Hall of Fame professional wrestler Vern Ganya is going to join me coming up next. Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat is brought to you by Budweiser, the king of beers, locally distributed by United Beverage Company of South Bend. Sports fans, this Bud's for you. Midland Engineering Company, beginning their second century of quality roofing experience. Tim Ground State Farm Insurance, save money on home and auto insurance with Tim, serving both Indiana and Michigan. 
Call 574-232-9981. Barnaby's of Mishawaka and Granger. Serving our community while serving Michiana's most favorite pizza since 1978. The Food Bank of Northern Indiana. Hunger's a story we can end. Find out how at feedindiana.org. The Mishawaka Education Foundation, granting a better future. And Wings Etc. Grill and Pub with 14 Michiana area locations. Stop in today or order online at togo.wingsetc.com. Some College World Series Notre Dame-related 2002 anniversary stuff coming up next on Budweiser's Weekday Sports. The wind and the 2-2 from J.P. Gagne. Breaking ball! Swing and a miss! And that's the ball game! J.P. Gagne retires the last nine batters he faces. The Florida State win streak comes to an end at 25, and Notre Dame is one win away from a trip to Omaha in the College World Series. 3-1, to one, Notre Dame in the top of the ninth, two outs and nobody on. J.P. Gagne into the windup. Futro, swing and a miss! Omaha, here come the Irish! 3-1 to one as Notre Dame storms the field! The Fighting Irish beat the number one team in the nation in two out of three games at the Super Regional on Florida State's home field. And Notre Dame is going to Omaha for the first time since 1957. Well, uh, those were some of the dramatic memories, the uh, dramatic endings from the 2002 Super Regional between Notre Dame and Florida State in Tallahassee, J.P. Gagne on the mound to close out both of those two games, games one and game three. And this, of course, the 20th anniversary of Notre Dame's 2002 College World Series team. And uh, JP is with us right now. How are you this afternoon, Mr. Gagne? I'm, I'm doing great. I got goosebumps just listening to that again. <laughs> well, those were uh, two two pretty big moments for, obviously, you and your team, 20 years since that College World Series team, which seems insane. But, you know, as you kind of sit back now and, and you think about that season, what, what's what's maybe the first thing or two that, that comes to mind when you think about that? Well, I, the first thing that I always think about is how we started out this season. I think we were like 10-10 and 10 through 20 games. Right. I mean, coming off of the previous two seasons where we had been so dominant right out of the gates, and I know that the previous year we were at number one in the – Things were oh, there in Hellman and, and Danny Tamayo to the draft, and we really had to reboot our pitching staff, and it, it showed at the beginning of that season. And I think we just had, you know, a pretty young staff. We had a lot of injuries. So we got off to a slow start, and then we just seemed to hit our stride, you know, about that 20th game, and we just kind of kept getting better and better, and our young players kept giving us more and more contributions, and you know, we seemed like we had we didn't have a lot as much pressure as maybe we had the two previous years and we just went on a went on a run it was fantastic and that was really the thing about that team obviously and it, just the resiliency that you guys had everything you talked about all the injuries there were so many injuries early on you know that contributed to that slow start that you talked about and obviously um, things ended up pretty well but it was uh you know, a lot of things had to happen. Those highlights they played from the Super Regional that went over Florida State, and they were number one in the nation. You had to beat them twice that weekend to get to Omaha. And I had uh, Paul Maneri on last week, and he talked about how he believed you guys could go there and win twice. And, I mean, between – I, I guess maybe this is a, a two-pronged question – where did the belief come that you guys could, you know, one, overcome all those early obstacles, and then two, 
going into that super regional against the number one team in the in the nation that that had won 25 straight how did you get you know have the belief that you were actually going to be able to do that you know i think i i think i owe we owe a lot of it to coach he i don't think he told us that they had 25 game winning streak i don't think he built them up <laughs> as as great as maybe they were uh-huh. uh so we were maybe a little naive heading into it and i think also for us it was a huge weight off of our shoulders just to get through the regional. I mean, we had been, you know, the previous couple of years, we had been within a few outs of, of winning a regional and we finally did it where, you know, I think for where we started, like I mentioned, we started so slow that for us, even just getting to a super regional was pretty exciting. So I think we were pretty relaxed going into it. And then, you know, I, I think we, we got off to such a great start in game one where we started hitting the ball right away. I know Stavisky had a home run. Right. You know, Grant Johnson was pitching great, and all of a sudden it's like, hey, we can play with these guys. They're not that special. I mean, you saw the big names that they had on the roster, but, it, you know, it seemed like we could play with them, and we kind of struck first and gave us the confidence to, to, to beat them that first game. And, you know, although we got kind of turned around on on game two, you know, Chris Neisel pitched so well in game three that I just, you know, it was, it was pretty amazing ride. And I think we just, we were able to maybe hit them with the first punch and that, and that gave us the confidence to, to pull through. Absolutely. JP Gagne with us from the 2002 Notre Dame college world series team, the 20th anniversary this year. So in that game one, you come in, it's the seventh inning. You guys had just gone up six to four in that game, do you remember like what you're thinking, what your mindset is? You're warming up and you're taking the mound for the first time down there. Uh, I figured that I was going to be finishing it. I don't think there was a game that year where by the time coach brought me in, it was more or less, <laughs> there's no one else coming in after you. So, you know, I knew I had to give them three good innings. Um, I was hoping that we would score a few more runs to give me a little more run support. Uh, if I, if I remember correctly, I think I came into the game with at least one guy on base and fell behind a hitter and gave up a really hard hit ball that I believe Stavisky made an incredible catch in left field on. Yes. And that took the pressure off. And after that, you know, I just more or less did my, my usual through strikes and let them hit it at our guys and hoping they'd be out. Um, you know, it was, I think that getting out of that first inning where they had guys on base and, and securing that, and I'm pretty sure we had an insurance run in either the the, the top of the eighth or top of the ninth, where it made things easier. When we ha- when you have at least a two-run cushion, you always feel like you can attack hitters a little bit more, and you just try not to walk anybody and give them any free passes. I, I dusted off you yeah. know a couple of the old CDs to pull out those those highlights the other day, and so I was listening to a little bit of it, and it's because I had forgotten about the place Davisky made that you just talked about, and then in the third game there was like a it was late in the game as well, the seventh or eighth inning, he made a great diving catch and he was a guy known much more for the home runs than his defense probably as an outfielder but he really had a good weekend out there in the outfield for you yeah 100 percent. i mean that that was not something expected i mean he was a great athlete he didn't maybe have uh the best arm but he could get around the outfield he was deceptive speed and he you know he made that great catch i think it was over his head on mine and then i remember in game three i was warming up down that left field line when the ball was hit i think there was like a runner on first that would have been, you know, kind of put him in the spot of, of tightening up the game. And he slid down the line right in front of the fence and right. made an incredible catch. So it was two huge plays that you really, you, you kind of forget about when, you know, we won the first game by a few runs and we're able to, you know, win the second game three to one, but they, uh, they meant a lot and really turned around that series. They had a guy Florida state did named Ryan Bartholomew 
and he had like 90 RBIs in a 56-game season going into that series, which is just an insane amount of RBIs in a 56-game season. But you guys locked him up all weekend. Do you remember kind of the plan of attack going against him? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, their lineup was, was pretty stacked. I mean, you had Stephen Drew, I believe, led off for him, who eventually ended up being a number one pick. Right. And I know Tony Ritchie was a catcher for them that was a, was a high, highly sought after, I think, you know, catcher. And Bartholomew at first base, I mean, yeah, he put up, it was, it was crazy numbers that he had. And, you know, I think the big thing for us was I think we changed speeds and we were trying not to let him get his arms extended. He was a bigger guy. Right. And I think a lot of his power – was kind of the center field in the opposite way. I do remember, I think it was in game two, he either, he hit one deeper, he hit one, uh, he, I don't know if it was out or it was deep to center field, that you could see that he had the power. And, you know, I, I think I was lucky enough, I think I faced him in game one and was able to get him out, but uh, avoided him in game three. But I think in general, you know, Chris and Grant and Peter, who are the starting pitchers that weekend, really just try to mix things up and, and keep them off balance more than anything. And uh, thankfully we did a pretty good job. You got him to pop up. As a matter of fact, all right. Again, there we listening go. to some I of that stuff, that. you got Man him to field. pop up. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so when likely I, a changeup. That's that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Speaking of which, I mean that was that was your best pitch, and I believe I misidentified it as as a breaking ball a couple of times. But it had it had so much movement, you know, about as much as I can remember from from any changeup. That's that's a hard pitch to master. How long had you, you know, kind of been working on that pitch? by that point you know it's pretty wild like I really you know when I showed up to Notre Dame I was I thought I was still more of a position player than I was a pitcher and obviously needed the pitching and and, and was thrust right into the role and it just was a pitch that I just I, I tell kids now when I'm coaching that you just need to grip it and play catch with it all the time and eventually you find a grip that feels comfortable and you you have control over it and over time as you noted, I started to get more and more movement on it. And, I mean, it really really was almost more of a screwball than it was a changeup, yeah. but obviously became a very <laughs> effective pitch for me. You know, I know Brian O'Connor fooled around with me for a while trying to get me to throw, like, a, a splitter or something else. Um, but I really couldn't – I didn't throw anything else that moved as well as that did, and I, I still throwed it, you know, threw it in a way that was deceptive enough coming off my fastball. So – you know, it was great, and, and both coaches, you know, Maneri and O'Connor trusted me to throw it in just about any situation, and, you know, Paul O'Toole was not afraid to, to throw down the wiggle <laughs> fingers just about at any point. So, you know, I threw my fair share, and, and it was effective. Yeah, I mean, effective that weekend in that between that game three where you retired nine in a row to end that game and then a one, two, three, ninth in the clincher, 12 guys you set down in a row in the, the changeup was uh, was obviously a pretty big part of that. I, I've shaken hands with you a few times. I seem to remember you've got some pretty big mitts. Does that kind of help, you know, with that with that change up? I think it does. I mean, it allowed me. I mean, it was really almost turned into a palm ball, so I could grip it. You know, my hands were, I guess, probably a little bit bigger for for my height that I could grip it way back in and really take a lot of speed off of it and uh, and feel like I could really kind of keep my same motion as I do with my fastball. So. I felt like the hitters couldn't really read what I was throwing, and that was, you know, a big part of what made it effective. But yeah, I think I think the big hands definitely helped. Well, you know, and when I had Paul on last week, he talked about that, you know, kind of being part of the rationale they needed a a closer for that team. You're midway through the season, you fire a complete game shutout in a midweek game against BYU, 
and then he says he asks you to become the closer. Do you remember kind of, you know, what's going through your head when he says, hey, by the way, do you want to be the closer now, GAP? I I was laughing. I mean, what what was hysterical about that stretch is that I had started a Sunday game, I believe it was, in West Virginia, and I don't know if I got out of the first inning. I was horrible. And then I come back two days later, and because I I only threw one inning, coach is like, we're going to start you – you know, against BYU, and without a doubt, it was my best outing I've ever had. I ever had, and really at Notre Dame, and throw a complete game. I was like, what, nine strikeouts, only two or three hits, and then legitimately the next day he brings me up and says, "You're the closer," and it's like, what? What did I do? What? Are you serious? But I mean, it made perfect sense, and I mean, and his explanation made a lot of sense. I mean, we had we had all these young great arms. We had you know Grant Johnson, you know Chris Neisel. John Axford, uh, Martin Dreguera, all these guys that came in with, with a lot of hype and had great velocity, and he could trust them early in the game, but you weren't always sure in a one-run game that you were going to get strikes out of them at the end of the game, and that was, right. you know, his big thing with me. And, you know, I had – I was fortunate enough my first couple of years where I, had a, I started a lot, and I came back on shorter rests and always bounced back pretty well. So I think he also felt like, you know, I could give him, you know, two, three, four innings – potentially throw the next day or even the third day in a row if needed so you know it all it all worked out and you know I kind of took a hold of the role wasn't a traditional closer with my velocity but um, definitely you know made made the most of it worked out pretty well JP Gagne with us from Notre Dame's 2002 College World Series team and so obviously you beat Florida State you go to Omaha describe that College World Series experience when you guys get there just incredible uh I'll never forget the practice day. We got to be on the field and just looking around at the stadium. I mean, I think we had, you know, at least a few hundred, if not a few thousand people in this massive stadium mm-hmm. uh, that you couldn't even wreck. You couldn't even picture there being a full, a full stadium at that practice day. You know, we did some autograph sessions. We got to do the whole thing. It was, it was just really, really neat. Stepping on that field for the game against Stanford and walking out day game, completely packed CBS. Uh, what a neat experience and incredible that, you know, looking back, how stacked that Stanford team, and we really took it, took him to the end. And you know, I think a lot of the guys in the team would say if the umpire wasn't giving Guthrie <laughs> about ten inches off of the plate, it That's might have right. been a different story. But um, you know, incredible experience. You know, we played in all three games. I was fortunate enough to pitch in all three games, and uh, you know, it'll, it's a memory that'll last a lifetime for sure. Yeah, and I mean, between the the two teams that you played, you played Stanford twice and, and you played Rice. I mean, there were like five or six, if not more, guys who ended up playing in the big leagues, and including a couple of big league pitchers on those teams. So, Yeah, I mean, I think Stanford's entire infield ended up playing in the major yeah. leagues, basically. I mean, they were they were stacked and they had Guthrie. Um, you know, we, we played them tight, and that Rice team was the number one team coming into it. So yeah. we... We definitely were on the tough side of the draw, and you know, looking back, it would have been great to pull off that first one and see what we could have really done. But you know, we put ourselves in a little bit of a hole after that first one and try to make a run of it. But it's tough once you get in that loser's bracket. Yep, absolutely, JP. I, I have to, I have to mention something. I know this used to come up with you a lot, but WrestleMania was Saturday. <laughs> do you, do you watch do you watch pro wrestling today? Are you into it at all? not a ton my dad is still pretty involved he's you know he's actually working on a a couple things on some memorabilia things still now and he's still pretty in touch with a lot of those former wrestlers i know he was in the rick flair 
30 for 30 on ESPN and, and yes. a lot of people came back and kind of, you know, retold a lot of those stories, but and they yeah, did like he, a, did you see that? They did like a, like a cartoon sort of thing. I think if I remember right. <laughs> yeah, they did like a little cartoon of my grandfather and training both Rick and my dad. And it was, uh, it, it was actually ESPN did a great job on it. And, you know, my dad made it sound like you might be in it and he ended up being a big part of those things, but yeah, yeah. It's pretty neat to see the old stuff, but to be honest, I haven't been too involved in watching some of the newer wrestling, but it's it's pretty incredible that it's taken off and it's as popular as it's ever been. No, absolutely. I've got a, I've got to sort of, I guess, back-sell this now for our listeners. Your grandpa was Vern Gagne, who was a, a pro wrestling Hall of Famer, right? Yeah, he's in the WD Hall of Fame, and it's yeah. really, I mean he was a true wrestler in the form of he played, he wrestled in college and I think he won four big 10 titles and a few national championships yeah. as a heavyweight at the university of Minnesota. So he parlayed that into a professional career yep. and, your, and my grandfather and my dead father followed in his footsteps. Right. He was a, a, a tag team champion, I believe in the nineties. So yep. Greg gun, exactly. yep, that's right. Up in, and based out of, of Minneapolis, did you ever did they, did they ever try to get you to go into the family business? What was what was that like? You know, not really. I mean, my dad. I, I played just about every other sport as a child. I mean, other than having to wrestle them and you know at at, at holidays or whenever, they felt like knocking some sense into me. I really never <laughs> learned wrestling. You know, I think my my friends found it almost more exciting that they'd come over and ask my dad or grandfather to put him in a sleeper hold or put him into some type of wrestling hold. Um, so that was always pretty entertaining to see, have a buddy wake up, you know, on the floor five minutes after my, my dad got his hands on. But, uh, yeah, they never really pushed me. I mean, I think it's I think it's a great sport, especially for youth, to just learn balance and strength. And I, right. I sometimes wish I would have. But um, it was one of those things that never pushed me into it. And, um, you know, thankfully I haven't got the call from Vince McMahon that I have to be at the <laughs> third in line and go, go get in the right. ring. I don't think I do very well at my age. That's right. I mean, you mentioned Ric Flair. It was kind of like, if I remember right, it was like when you were growing up, wasn't it basically like a who's who of wrestling that kind of came through your household there? <laughs> yeah. My, uh, my mom actually gave me the, uh, their wedding video a few years ago and you know, Ric Flair was actually in the wedding and had Hulk Hogan, Andre the Giant were in the first row. And, <laughs> you know, her side of the family does not, they come from more of a ha- hockey background. So they were looking around like, who the heck are all these guys at the wedding? But yeah, <laughs> I mean, we did, you know, it was regular to see all those guys around the house when they, when they come and wrestle in town. And, you know, we did, we did family vacations and trips with the Flares and other families. So it was, uh, a very unique childhood, that's for sure. I don't know how I ended up as a baseball player. That's awesome. Well, you did, and a very good one at that. J.P. Gagne, the closer from Notre Dame's 2002 College World Series team, and of this, this of course, the 20-year anniversary of that team. And you guys are are coming into. Are you coming into town for the anniversary later this month? Yeah, I wouldn't miss it. I'm really excited right. to see everybody. I mean, we we have people spread out all over the country, so it's so great when we can all. Pick a spot and come back for it and catch a, catch a weekend of baseball. All right. Awesome. That's going to be the uh, the end of the month, I believe. The Boston College series is uh, when Correct. that's taking place. So, all right. Well, looking forward to that. JP, great stuff. It was great catching up with you. I appreciate your time. Great, uh, great memories from the College World Series in 2002. Thanks a lot, Sean. Really appreciate it. Thanks yep. for all your support. Yep, absolutely. J.P. Gagne from Notre Dame's 2002 
College World Series team. Let's take a timeout and we come back. More Budweiser's weekday sports beat is coming up on Sports Radio 960 AM WSBT. Budweiser's weekday sports beat continues on Sports Radio 960 AM. WSBT getting close to the top of the hour. Kansas College Basketball's men's national champion. I promise this is the last time I'll mention this. Until I mention it again anyway. But <laughs> Crazy, crazy game last night. Obviously means a, a, a lot more to me since it's the school that I graduated from and you know all that kind of thing. I'm the only member of my family to graduate from the University of Kansas, but my family actually has pretty deep connections there. My grandpa, my dad's dad, when he retired from the Army in the mid-60s at, at Fort Riley, Kansas, about an hour and a half away from KU, he and my grandma moved to Lawrence, and he actually got a job running one um, the dining hall at one of the residence, the, the student residence halls on campus there at, uh, at KU. So, you know, so we were always in Lawrence growing up around the school and stuff like that. We'd hear about, you know, what a bad job Ted Owens was doing for my grandpa. Uh, his most prominent player was Darnell Valentine, who's actually from Chicago, played in the NBA for a few years as well. And then after I got out of the Army, I enroll at Kansas, meet my wife there. Our two kids were born there in Lawrence. My wife's grandpa, uh, he was actually a mason who cut some of the stones, you know, the the rocks to build Allen Fieldhouse. And so our connection there to our alma mater runs pretty deep. You know, it's just, it's just different when your school – wins it compared to like a professional team and stuff like that because I'm a Royals fan too they won a World Series a few years back but you know when you graduate from the school you've got an automatic connection that's deeper I think than professional sports but one thing I had to chuckle at though the amount of Kansas State University fans the Wildcats you know the purple team from Kansas the K-State fans going out of their way to take shots at Kansas during this run talking about the easy path the Jayhawks had to the championship and a couple of friends on social media you know gagging last night and you know ripping them up you know for the stuff going on with the NCAA as well and you know that is kind of the downside of this but you know it is just hilarious to see them get so worked up about another team winning it all because once again the only thing Kansas State Wildcat fans have to cheer about is you know going the schadenfreude route by cheering and jeering against the Kansas Jayhawks so it just makes it that much more fun as well when uh, when you can work up your rival live rent free in their head and you know really not have to do anything in the process. Uh, we've got rapid fire coming up in the six o'clock hour. Jesse's going to join me. We've got all kinds of topics from uh, Notre Dame football and the announcement coming out of there today, the uh, Tennessee State announcement. If you hadn't heard that, I'll have that coming up for you in Sports Center and at the top of the next hour as well. Masters also this week. We've got our first edition of the Corona Premier Golf Show. Coming up Saturday morning, 8 to 9 o'clock, Darren Pritchett and Tim Firestone, Firestone out at Blackthorn. Uh, that is coming up this Saturday morning, 8 until 9 o'clock. They will be live out there. Masters weekend, kicking off the golf show here on. You're listening to Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat with Sean Styers. On Sports Radio 960 AM, WSBT. Who wants to have some fun? 
Rapid Fire starts now on Sports Radio 960 AM, WSBT. And now your host, Sean Styers. Along with Jesse Styers tonight, Rapid Fire on Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat. How are you this evening? I'm doing good. There's a, a great lineup of questions. <laughs> I'm excited to talk about all of them. I do what I can. I do what I can with the uh, the lineup of questions. I'm glad you approve tonight. And we had one dropped on us about an hour and a half or so before the show started tonight. And it is uh, an interesting one. Notre Dame is announced today that the football team is going to play Tennessee State University to open up next season, the 2023 season. So a couple of different things on this. It'll mark the first time the Irish have ever played an historically black college and university, and also the first time they have ever played an FCS school, football championship subdivision school on the gridiron. So I'm curious what you think about this, their decision that they're going to play an FCS school for the first time ever. And not only that, not only the first time they've ever done it, they will be the last team to have never played an FCS. As of right now, they are the last team to have never played an FCS school. So this is they're they're going to leave that distinction behind when they do this next year taking on Tennessee State. What do you think? You know, when I first saw this, I was kind of on the fence about it. Um, but, but I really think what, what this boils down to and why I think I'm okay with it is because that they are, in fact, playing a historically uh, black college and university. Um, I think that there is a obvious kind of influence from Marcus Freeman in this situation, I guess you could say. Um, maybe that's, you know, maybe that's me being wrong or, you know, out stretching for something that's not there. But it just seems like um, his influence is maybe what kind of led to this game. And I think it's actually better than playing, uh, you know, maybe another FCS school or, you know, the, the, a team like Tennessee or, you know, some of the schools that Alabama plays or Auburn plays in the first couple games of the season. You know, I can't directly think of some exact schools right now. Um, but I, it's, it just it also kills every argument that is that I make as a Notre Dame fan. That's exactly right. The reason for the reason why they aren't in a conference is, well, okay, they play 12 FBS schools every year. Um, so that one, and then most schools play one FCS team every year. So they're playing 11 FBS. And then the argument becomes, okay, well, that extra game that you're playing in a conference championship is your 12th game to make up, you know, the fact that Notre Dame plays 12 FBS schools. So that's where yep. I, I, I was on the fence about it and why I kind of have not resentment, but maybe some uneasiness about them doing this is because you already aren't in a conference. Uh, you already don't play in a conference championship, and that's a big knock, and everyone brings that up every year. And now the fact that you're taking off one more FBS school, it kind of becomes a big deal in my opinion. But like I said, I think I'm okay with it because of it being a historically black college. I think that's good, uh, good on Notre Dame's part. Um, and like I said, I think there has some influence from, from Marcus Freeman, but I could be wrong. Um, but overall, I'm 50-50. I like the fact that it's a historically black college, but like I said, it takes away um, from them playing 12 FBS. Schools. I mean, there has to be Marcus Freeman influence on this because he played at Ohio State. The head coach at Tennessee State is Eddie George, who, of course, played 
at Ohio State and actually played here at Notre Dame Stadium. Eddie George did back in the mid '90s. So you know, there's 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 that connection right there, and that's you know, we don't know what the full schedule is going to look like for 2023. But the bottom line is just what you talked about with the FCS thing, because no matter what, you know, no matter what people wanted to say about Notre Dame's schedule. They could always say, look, we've never played an FCS school. And, you know, when it comes to the end of the season, nobody's going to care that this was a historically black college university that Notre Dame played. And, you know, they threw them a bone and all that kind of stuff. All that's going to matter is now you've played an FCS school. So it doesn't, you know, it, it, all, from Notre Dame's perspective, because of the fact they don't play in a conference, they you know there's no chance of a conference championship game to give them that extra boost at the end of the season. If they're in contention and they've got a loss at the end of the season and they have this game on the schedule, nobody else is going to care about the HBCU aspect of this. No, no one's going to care about that. And you know, it, it obviously justifies making this decision. But, you know, this also goes into something that touched on a little bit on yesterday's show, the announcement over the weekend that Marcus Freeman made that they're going to go back to doing the pregame mass at the Basilica. And, okay, so they're doing this because they're going to go back to the tradition. When Marcus Freeman visited Notre Dame when he was on a recruiting visit, they did it. He thought it was really cool. They're going back to this tradition. So, and I realize a lot of alums are really behind this decision. They think that it's great that that you go back and now you're doing the pregame mass. That was a tradition. Brian Kelly got rid of it. Everybody hates Brian Kelly. Okay, we're going back to the tradition of doing mass. Well, which which tradition matters more now? What you know, is it the one that you had for a long time that was done away with, or the one that you've had forever? You've never played an FCS school. Now you're going to push that. You know. Not just tradition, but but long-standing thing that really matters when it comes to the on-field. Are you playing for championships or not? Now you're playing an FCS school. So, so which tradition matters more? That's that's I guess what I don't get in all this. Again, you justify it because it's an HBCU. So it, you know it 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 you look a little bit better by doing it. But at the, at the end of the day, it's still an FCS school. And are you in this to win championships? Or not, because playing in FCS school does not help you accomplish your goal of winning national championships. Yeah, just to kind of go off what you were saying there, I just I really think it counter counter negates or counter reacts uh, the the overall goal of playing for a national championship and preparing yourself to play for a national championship, especially when you know as, as head coach of Notre Dame that you're going to take flack every year for not being in a conference, not playing in a conference championship. And this is the one thing that kind of, you know, kept your head above the water and now you're taking it away because it seems like you kind of want to, you know, outreach for a guy that you know or, you know, that kind of situation. Um, I, I just really don't – and look, this this happened with Mike Bray this year. He They, they had a game canceled. They went out and played a historically black college. And it, it yes, it looked good, but at the end of the at the end of the day, it didn't help them on their you know their resume. Would have killed them if they'd lost, <laughs> right? And it didn't it didn't help them anymore when they were fighting for that one of those last spots to get into the field of sixty four. I guess you could could say sixty eight with the four play in teams. I just really don't want this to blow up and backfire on Notre Dame. I hope it's not something that they continue to take forward. You know, hopefully this is a, a one off once in a a one off. A hope you know you can only hope. 
Uh, I maybe once every 10 years for me, I'd like to just to never do it again. Um, but that's not up to me. Yeah. I mean, are we taking Dion Sanders call when, you know, when Dion calls and wants to get Jackson state up here you know, to play up here as well, or are we just throwing, you know, is, I mean, it just looks like he's throwing his buddy a bone here because they're both Ohio state guys. Eddie George played at Ohio state. Marcus Freeman played at Ohio state. What do you think about the, uh, the other aspect of this, the going back to pregame mass at the Basilica? Do you buy or sell bringing that tradition back? You know, I actually, I, I don't mind this one. Um, I, I think it's, it's, it's a good idea, and I'm glad that Marcus Freeman is having the team partake in mass again. I think the only knock on it is that you, you don't know where guys stand uh, in, in their, I guess you could say, their religious beliefs or worship, and you don't want to force anyone to do something uh, that, don't, that they don't necessarily believe in. Uh, but growing up, it was always cool to see the players walk from the Basilica to the stadium after morning mass. It was just a routine, a ritual that they did. As a player, I think it's a good idea. When I was playing in college, um, I was never really super religious by any means, but we had a morning service uh, every morning of home, home games. It was a good way to get the morning started with your teammates. Everyone gets up. Everyone has an alarm clock they got to wake up to. Uh, you start the day together. You end your day together. Morning Mass always felt like it It kind of set the tone for the rest of the day and allowed us to come hmm. together early on as a team. You know, you got you got with each other early. You knew that the rest of the day uh, you were going to be spent, you know, time together. But it just really felt like it got us, got our juices moving, you know, kind of woke all of us up, had us, gave us a deadline or somewhere to be on the on game day rather than, you know, being, being not saying that people did this, but being out late or maybe waking up a little bit later than they should be. So I think it gives people or, or players more accountability and just kind of like I said, it starts your t your day off as a team. You start moving together as a team early on. Interesting way to to look at it because I look at it and I think the rate you know the reason Brian Kelly got rid of it. And again, if you're anti Brian Kelly and oh he he shunned tradition, he didn't really love Notre Dame and all those things. Okay, if that's what you want to believe, you can. You can believe that, but I think he got rid of it because of the time management aspect on a home game day because there's so many other things going on surrounding a home game weekend, and you're essentially talking about probably what, you know, like an hour and a half commitment because they were still doing a walk. It was just from the Goog instead of the Basilica. So they'll be coming, you know, they'll be walking from the other direction to get to the stadium. Now back to the direction that the, that the team used to go to I just I understood it from a time aspect you know there are so many other things and commitments that both the coaches and the players and everyone else has I understood that and again like you know I went I went to Kansas you can argue that the basketball tradition at Kansas there you know it's it's every bit as much as the football tradition at Notre Dame, two schools deeped in, steeped in tradition, one football, one basketball. The traditions I care about are the ones that actually help you win games or that, you know, that that take part, take place during the games. Like at Kansas, at the end of the game, they're winning. They wave the wheat. Like if you ever see the band start playing and and uh, fans in the stands are waving their arms around, it's the waving of the wheat tradition, you know, kind of like you know, when the when the students at the football games, you know, do the arm chop and, and all that different stuff. You know, those traditions, that's different. What actually helps you win football games? Those are the traditions that I, I care about. And so, you know, again, I realize that the old guard 
This is something that was important to them. But again, like we're looking at at on one side, okay, we're bringing back this tradition. Doesn't help you win football games. We're doing away with another tradition. Not playing, not ever playing FCS. Doesn't help you win championships. So I just, I, I just, I don't know what's being accomplished here, you know, with these two things. I get what you're saying, though, about, you know, you're together with the team and all that kind of stuff, but you can be together with the team and walk from the goog as well. So I don't know. Maybe I'm just anti. <laughs> Maybe I'm just anti. I just don't feel like either one of these things help you towards your goal of winning championships. Because, you know, because, again, you can you know, all the knocks you want to have on Brian Kelly, they won a lot of games over the last five years under Brian Kelly, and they weren't doing – you know, the Basilica and, and going to mass beforehand. So I, I, I don't I don't see that that now okay, now 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 they're going to mass, that's gonna help you start winning more games because you're going to mass. That's what matters most. I think either way an important aspect to look at here is these are maybe the first couple of moves uh in Freeman's tenure that haven't, you know, maybe have caused some concern. Or, you know, he, he hasn't done anything really up until this point that makes you raise your eyebrows and, okay, it's just been kind of like, oh, he's great, he's great, he's great. But now these are the things that are kind of allow you to have uh, different opinions or maybe even, I guess you could say, an argument about whether, you know, you agree with him or not. So either way, I think that this is the first couple things in, in his tenure where we're actually having things yeah. or, or controversial talking points of not just being like, oh, this is great, he's great, uh, he's doing all the right things. That's These right. Are the first couple of things I think we've seen that give us something to talk about and there's going to be disagreement on. And that's – everything is still great right now because it's spring football practice. There's no real game to be played. But let them lose a close game in September or – October and then all these things start you know do we did we really want to you know start doing that again should we you know uh, whether it matters or not then all of these things start becoming different points just like you're talking about you know so I don't know we shall see we shall see let's take a time out when we come back we've got more rapid fire we'll get into the national championship game last night was it a choke job by North Carolina that and more coming up when Rapid Fire and Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat continues on Sports Radio 960 AM WSBT. Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat continues on Sports Radio 960 AM WSBT with Jesse Styers, Sean Styers. Okay, so I've got a clip from a Michigan radio show. They are talking about the Woodward. Woodward Network or something like that. They're talking about Notre Dame safety, Kyle Hamilton. Now, the first voice you're going to hear is from one of the hosts on the show. His name is Ryan Ermini, Ermani, and the other voice is from former Michigan and NFL wide receiver Braylon Edwards. So have a listen here to what these yuckers have to say. Who's the one guy you, you will be like, Oh no! If the Lions PTSD. pick him, to me it's Kyle Hamilton. Uh, <clears throat> I, and I really hope I'd rather them take it, an opportunity on Sauce Gardner. Yeah. I'd rather them go with Thibodeau. I'd rather them do anything other than take Kyle Hamilton. It's almost like when you put the game film on, and I watch Notre Dame a lot. How can you not? Um, when he's on the field, I just don't NBC. feel like he's a difference maker. He just wasn't that. That 
difference maker that you saw Aiden Hutchinson take over a game. Hell, in the UCLA game, you did see that from Kayvon Thibodeau. Yeah. Uh, Sauce Gardner, nobody's taking half the field away for his entire for the entire year, let alone yeah. a game. Um, you have these defensive players who just take over a game, and I just never saw that from him. Something about it's something about Notre Dame that just doesn't translate into the NFL. I look at all these great players that Notre Dame has had in terms of in college. They don't pan out in the league. And if you want to specifically focus on the safety position, Tom Zivikowski, nothing. Glenn Earl, nothing. Jerome Sapp, nothing. They don't pan out in the league. We talked about this. If you want to draft a guy number two, play safety, he's got to be a game changer. Mm-hmm. He's got to be a guy that you win games because. He's got to be a guy that the other team is scared to play against. They have to come up with a game plan for. Um, one thing about a safety, there's a lot on that potential. He's literally the quarterback of the defense. He and the Mike linebacker. He has to know everybody's position. He has to know the coverages. He has to know everything about the offense that he's playing against, about the defense that he's playing on. Got to know all that stuff. When you play with a cornerback, cornerback doesn't have the same responsibilities. They could be a lockdown, shutdown corner, and they could just worry about their third of the field. Kyle Hamilton's got to worry about the whole field and everybody, and I just don't want to put that type of judge. I don't want to put that type of pressure on a guy that I don't believe in. That's why I don't want Kyle Hamilton number two. I think he's a really good player, not at two. All right, Jesse, fill in the blank. Those takes are blank. Uh, both of those takes, takes wow, are point blank <laughs> idiotic. I, like capital I-D-I-O-T-I-C. I was starting to sympathize with Ryan Armani. And actually, I, I while you were playing that, I looked him up because I told you I recognized him from somewhere. Well, when I was living in Detroit, he was the Fox 2 yeah. Detroit sports uh, sports guy. Okay. And so we would watch the news sometimes, and he would come up. So that's where I recognized him from. Uh, but sadly, I never knew how dumb he was. But <laughs> I was starting to sympathize with him until I heard him state I would rather them take anyone but Kyle Hamilton. He goes on to say, when he's on the field, I just feel like he is not a difference maker. He's not a like guy like Aiden Hutchinson, Sauce Gardner, or even Thibodeau, where they can take over the game. Uh, Braylon Edward goes on to say, there's just something about Notre Dame that doesn't translate into the NFL. They don't pan out in the league. So there's a couple of things to dissect here. First of all, I'm not sure if Ryan saw Notre Dame and Florida State play to open the game this year where Hamilton ran halfway across the I know. field to snatch, to snatch one of his two interceptions I know. on the night. And, and then the announcers were just jaw, you know, jaws dropped because they couldn't believe a guy covered that span of the field to get that interception in, in such a short amount of time. Or maybe, maybe the game where they played Purdue and he had seven solo tackles and covered Purdue's best wideout over the middle of the field the entire game and was shutting him down. You know, Kyle Hamilton is every defensive coordinator's secondary coach's dream for what Braylon Edwards was just talking about. He's masterful when it comes of being kind of like that Mike linebacker in the secondary. He has to know what's going on. He's not like Sauce Gardner, who has a third of the responsibilities and only has to worry about a third of the field. I mean, Kyle yeah, Hamilton. I mean, two completely different positions that he's trying to compare there. Gardner and, you know, a cornerback and a safety, you know. Yeah, I mean, and you see guys, uh, it's it's harder to be a lockdown great safety in the NFL than it is to be a corner. And now, another thing about Kyle Hamilton is he covers a lot of ground. We saw that. He can man up with guys running deep over routes. 
He can cover his third of the field if he needs to, but he can also fly downhill and make about just about any tackle in open space. And I don't think you can make that comment about any safe, just a, just any safety. You know, I saw Kyle Hamilton come downhill against Navy and fill run lanes and absolutely blow up plays. I saw him, you know, blow up wide receivers, catching screens out of the backfield. I saw him, you know, blow up Purdue's wide receiver going on shallow crosses over the middle. I mean, and then just to add on to it, he's 6'4 and 220 pounds. Like, you don't see that kind of size at safety. So that, that first of all, that takes care of Ryan Armani's comments. Now going on to Braylon Edwards' comments. Has he ever heard of the all-pro six-time <laughs> Pro Bowl safety, Harrison Smith? Right. Who came out of Notre Dame after, you know, the most recent safety to come out of Notre Dame. He came after Tom Zibikowski and, and some of those other names that he mentioned and you know, Nerdy has dominated the offensive line, tight end, and somewhat the defensive line as of recent when it comes to guys in the NFL. And, you know, we can also take a peek at you know, schools with the most Hall of Famers because Notre Dame sits at the top with 13. You know, granted, Michigan is close by with 11, uh, but it's still too short of Notre Dame. Uh, maybe there's a couple more Michigan guys in the NFL at the moment right now, but we're talking, you know, just a couple here. I, I really think that comment was just just so out of pocket by Braylon. I don't, I don't understand where that came from. You know, at the end of the day, there's obvious bias by both of these guys, which I get. It's hard at times. Ryan Armani went to Michigan. Braylon Edwards played at Michigan. But you have to set that aside when you're talking about a guy with top five talent in this year's draft. And I'm even going to take it one step further. During the combine, Mina Kimes was live on NFL Network with the crew and Point Blank said that she doesn't think there is a better player in this draft than Kyle Hamilton. Mm -hmm. So maybe we should roll that audio for them. <laughs> That's Braylon Edwards. It's like I might as well be making Gunsmoke references to you. Gunsmoke, by the way, was an old Western TV show from the 60s and the 70s that you probably have no idea that it even existed. Like, and this is not a shot on, on Zibikowski, Glenn Earl, and Jerome Sepp, but these are guys who played 20 years ago when what? When Braylon Edwards was in college. I mean, he's trying to make an argument about a Notre Dame skill position defensive player today, and it's just like you know, he wants to start talking about Kyle Hamilton, so he just brings up the three safeties from Notre Dame that he remembers, Tom Zibikowski, Glenn Earl, Jerome Sapp, who are all, by the way, really good college safeties by the way, but the, yeah, you know, they're right. He did the, they didn't pan out in the NFL for different reasons. Zipikowski lasted a little bit longer, but kind of his own demons caught up with him. But at the same, it's just like, he just, he brings up guys from, from almost 20 years ago, because those are the three guys he actually remembers. And just the whole thing about not being a difference maker. It's like, put in, put in some actual game film. If you want to tell me about Kyle Hamilton and whether or not He's That's a difference maker. Really, it's just really upset me. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And that's that that play against Florida State, the interception that you mentioned is the first one that I thought about as well. I mean, you look at the ground that he covered. They were literally trying to stay away from him. And he comes all the way across the field from the far hash mark to the near sideline, dives and makes an interception, you know, keeping his feet in bounds and going out of bounds. You know, the definition of of, of actual game speed and ability covering you know a, a, a large amount of ground and also body control just you know to be able to make that catch and hold on to it before he went out of bounds just just ridiculous now you know you can you can talk about whether you should take any safety at number two 
if you want, yes. but I'll just say, you know, yes. uh, for for Kyle Hamilton's sake, I hope the I hope the Lions don't take him at number two because I would I would not wish that organization on anyone. So there's that. Yeah, and just kind of kind of what you were what you were saying there. It's like imagine if Kyle Hamilton doesn't make those two interceptions against Florida State, a game in yeah. which they had to go to overtime. Yeah. to win their first game of the year. That Great sets point. the tone. What if they? What if they lose that game? How does the rest of the season pan out? What does yeah. that do for you know everyone's confidence and everything like that going forward? But I agree. It's just if you don't want to take Kyle Hamilton, that's where I said I kind of sympathize. If that's not the kind of position player you want to take at number two, but don't say he's not a difference maker and that he doesn't have the talent yeah. because he does. And if you don't want him, hey, I would love for him to fall down to the Cowboys. Please, <laughs> yes. I hope every team that's right. overlooks him and lets him fall down to the I hope Cowboys. A lot of teams pass on him. That's right. All right, national championship game last night. Kansas Jayhawks were down by 16 in the first half, 15 at halftime. I heard the C word broken out today. Do you buy or sell it as a choke job by North Carolina? You know, I I completely sell this as a choke job. I can't believe that was even brought up. In my opinion, Kansas's game plan going into the night had to be that they were going to attack Armando Baycott uh, down low with McCormick since Baycott was coming off that bad uh, ankle. Right. You know, that no one wanted to shut up about the entire pregame. And, and just like Charles Barkley said, he dunked, okay? It, it, he dunked in pregame. He was fine. He was going to play. Now, this was seen uh, – this was seen as, as Kansas kind of kept forcing the ball down low and playing off of more McCormick or maybe you could even say playing through – McCormick, which obviously didn't go well. Also, Kansas did not play sound defense in the first half like they had been playing all tournament. Um, and then at halftime, you kind of heard Charles Barkley say they need to stop playing through McCormick like yeah. he's their, I don't know, Big 12 player of the year or their Naismith, uh, you know, finalist guy. They, they just needed to Abaji. stop playing through McCormick. <laughs> yeah, they needed to stop playing through McCormick like he was the star of the team, but instead – you know, maybe stretch them out and let your guards play. Let get like make play with maybe a little bit smaller lineup. And in the second half, that's kind of what we saw. They stretched out McCormick towards the top of the key instead of having him clog up the lane and stand underneath the basket. And this was immediately seen when McCormick and Harris run that high pick and roll the first play out of the half and throw up an, a nice alley oop. You know, to get things going, stretching McCormick out allowed Kansas's guards to get into action as they now had lanes to drive through. Right. Um, and they, they didn't have to worry about him standing under the bucket. And that was seen, you know, with Christian Brown. He, he started going off at the beginning of the second half, too. And then kind of finally, my last point here is like Notre Dame women's basketball, Kansas wants its guards to get out and start moving in transition. Mm -hmm. But you can only do that with good defense. And that's kind of what I talked about. They didn't play good defense in the first half. They let North Carolina get to their spots and hit down shots that they know how to make. Well, in the second half, Kansas really stepped up its defensive effort, forced North Carolina to take those shots that they're not used to taking or not let them get to the spots that they like. And, you know, this in turn allowed Kansas to get out on the frass break and score in transition with their guards. And it, it, that's what they needed to do because they have some of the best guards in the country. Uh, just to kind of wrap it up here, just like the saying goes, good defense will always lead to easy offense. Yeah. That's what Kansas started to do in the second half. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I, so I don't think it was a choke job either. I think it was just finally, I, I don't know why it took Bill Self so long to make those adjustments. And that was, you know, that's what Barkley was ripping him apart for at halftime. Should have been able to figure that out. Like Barkley said, you're not playing Villanova with all these short guys and McCormick can just go off. There's a reason McCormick went off against Villanova in the semifinals because he was bigger than most of those guys and they took advantage of it. But they didn't have the size advantage 
against North Carolina. They had an advantage in depth. They had an advantage in speed and athleticism. Baycott that you talked about there with the ankle, you're right. I think they thought they were going to be able to take advantage of him inside. That did not happen. So what did they need to do? Well, if you got a guy with a gimpy ankle and size who's not as athletic as you and you have and they don't have the depth that you have, you got to wear them out. And that's what they finally did. They you know, they just all the things that you pointed out, they started racing up and down up court, started with their defense because that's that's what it comes down to. As well, you got to make stops to really be able to run. And then when they were in the half court, they they adjusted by bringing McCormick to the high post, like you talked about as well, opening up you know some of those lanes for their guards to get active. And there was more Remy Martin as well because Martin was not really a big factor against Villanova in the semifinal Saturday, but he hit some huge threes, and it's like. Remy Martin is just one of those no, 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 yes guys because like almost every time he puts up the ball, I'm going what are you doing? And then it goes in it's like, all right, okay, I'm good with that. Thanks Remy. I love the way Remy Martin plays. He's always on the edge, you know, but we saw more of Remy Martin in the second half than we did in the first half as well, but again, it it played into that, what you're talking about. Let the guards do their thing and, and, you know, when you're running getting them down the court, that was, yeah. So North Carolina did not choke. They just, you know, unfortunately for them, they had some issues with the injuries. They lacked depth. But Kansas was finally able to take advantage of it in the second half. They, they should have been able to take advantage of it sooner in the first half. But I'm just glad that Bill Self finally made that adjustment and uh, they went on to win. So it was, I mean, that was an exciting second half of basketball. That was a fun half to watch you know probably you know obviously unless you're a Carolina fan like my buddy Bobby you know watching that lead slowly tick away but then you know after that first nine minutes it was a back and forth game the rest of the way and I heard Ernie Johnson say after the game each team had the lead in that game for exactly 18 minutes and 32 seconds and the other what three and a half minutes or so or whatever in change three minutes uh, it was tied, you know, so, I mean, you talk about a great game, you know, again, great second half. We'll take a timeout. When we come back, we've got more basketball talk and more in rapid fire on Budweiser's weekday sports beat. Winding down rapid fire and Budweiser's weekday sports beat with Jesse Styers, Sean Styers. So fill in the blank. College football and men's basketball national championship games on a Monday night, Jess, are blank. They're not ideal, but they're manageable. <laughs> you know, I, I actually didn't mind the late tip-off between Kansas and North Carolina until I until I realized it was, you know, nearing midnight by the, end of, <sighs> by the time the game ended. It might have been after midnight, to be honest with you. Um, I'm more than okay with the late starts in college basketball compared to f- college football. Um, in college basketball uh, there's a much faster pace so the games kind of seem to go by a little bit quicker compared to college football I just have a problem with college football because the games take so much longer true it's a prolonged halftime you know it's a prolonged uh, introduction and there's just a lot of moving parts it seems like when it comes to a college football game so those tend to take a little bit longer and I understand the reasoning for starting at nine. That way, the West Coast folks nine twenty nine twenty. There's a big difference. Nine, <laughs> those West folk, West Coast folks can settle in at you know six twenty, 
after after work, dinner, etc., compared to maybe a 420 or 520 if the game tipped off at 720 or 820 here on the, in, in the Eastern time zone. But like I said, it's not ideal. Um, I like it more in college basketball than I do college football. College football is almost miserable to me. Um, but yeah, it's not not ideal, and, but it's definitely manageable. Yeah, I mean, nine twenty is 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 a later start than even they do for football. Now, obviously, it's basketball, so the games don't take as long. So, but if you can start a a football game at eight or eight twenty, you should be able to start the basketball game at eight or eight twenty as well. And this this is not like a you know an angry old man barking at the clouds kind of thing. My bigger point is the bigger like you know like one. The Monday night, it's like Saturday night is like, who, yeah, you know, party night. I'm watching the Final Four and I'm doing my thing and, you know, bowl games on set, you know, whatever. It's like so different. And last night, not, you know, not that, you know, it's it's more like you feel like I felt like anyway. You know, I'm sitting in my living room. I'm not going to have a bunch of beverages and stuff like that late on a Monday night, so you you, you kind of lose that aspect of it if the beverages and stuff like that are your thing. But the bigger impact is, like, I'm fully invested in that game. So if I'm a fan of either team, and this happened last night, the adrenaline is still flowing after the game. My team just won a national championship, and had I been on the other side and Kansas lost my team just lost a national championship I had to lay in bed for like an hour and a half watching TV just to get to the point where I could fall asleep afterwards so not only is the game late and it lasts late into the night but because my blood was flowing and my adrenaline is still surging it took another hour and a half to come down from that afterwards you know so that was a bigger thing and I'm still kind of you know flowing on adrenaline today after they won the whole thing last night so that's the thing it's just like you know the whole thing it's monday night man i'm over all of it don't need any of it let's i I don't know but i get it i know nothing's going to be done about it i get it it's just hard to come down (laughs) afterwards yeah that's right all right last night's 15 point national championship game comeback with that in mind fill in the blank the best comeback you've ever been a part of in your life, either as a player, a fan, whatever other capacity is blank. Um, I had a hard time thinking of comebacks as a player. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. My memory's kind of starting to get bad. Unfortunately, the the farther removed I get away from some of this stuff. Um, but one game in particular, for some reason, struck my mind. Uh, we were playing a travel baseball tournament where we scored like. I want to say like 10 runs in the final inning at least. And we had at least one out too uh, to come back and win, win a tournament game. It was just kind of cool. We, we were having fun with it. We didn't, you know, we were just up there being loose. Like, okay, if we get a hit, it goes on. If not, you know, it's not the end of the world. And then 10 runs later, right here we are. And we won the, we won the game. So that was really cool. Um, as a fan, it is no doubt, no question. When the Cubs came back from a three, one, deficit to beat the then Indians in the 2016 World Series. Good one. Um, another one then that's up there for me is the Red Sox overcoming the 3-0 deficit to beat the Yankees in the ALCS. Another good one. Uh, another big one that I liked. And then finally, uh, one that came to mind was when the Cavaliers beat the Warriors in the NBA Finals after being down 3-1. Same Warriors team that featured Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, Kevin Durant, and Draymond Green, and what was considered to be the best regular season team of all time 
those were those were my comebacks. All right, those are the ones I, I like that I liked the most. I'll the just ones that came to mind. We only got a few seconds here, so I'm going to just make mine short and sweet since we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of Notre Dame's 2002 College World Series team. Omaha, Brian Stavisky, walk off home run, beats Rice at the College World Series. Obviously, got to call that game, so that's the one that I'll go with. But you had a lot of good ones there as well. All right, Jess, great stuff as always. We'll wrap it up with that, and I'll talk to you later. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Yep, absolutely. Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat. We are brought to you by Budweiser Midland Engineering Company, Tim Ground State Farm Insurance, Four Winds Casinos, Barnabies of Mishawaka and Granger, Food Bank of Northern Indiana, Mishawaka Education Foundation, and Wings Etc. Grill and Pub. We'll wrap it up with that, and we'll talk to you tomorrow night on Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat. Hey everyone, Saltgrass Steakhouse is now open in Mishawaka. Wrangle up the crew and head down to Saltgrass Mishawaka for an unforgettable experience. Sink your teeth into mouth-watering char-grilled, certified Angus beef steaks. Sip on ice-cold craft cocktails. And don't forget to try the famous Spicy Range Rattlers, all made daily in the Scratch Kitchen. Start making delicious memories at Saltgrass Mishawaka, 5126 North Main Street, across from Lazy Boy Furniture Galleries. Dine with us today.